Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hi, I'm Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And this is Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Pocahontas, Arkansas. Located in northeast Arkansas in Randolph County, the town of Pocahontas was first settled in 1807. The family of Dr. Ransom Bettis is given the credit for being the first settlers on the land. Dr. Bettis's daughter, Cinderella, married a man named Thomas Drew and lived on 800 acres in Randolph County. Bettis and Drew founded the town and chose to name it in honor of Pocahontas, the Powhatan woman who was an instrumental player in the relationship between the Powhatan people and the Jamestown colonists in the early 17th century. Although the town is small, with just 7,000 residents according to the 2020 census, Pocahontas has its own municipal airport and is located in an area that is within easy driving distance to cities like Little Rock, Jonesboro, and Memphis. Pocahontas is a river port town with the downtown district located on a bluff that overlooks the Black River and showcases the well-preserved buildings from the late 1800s and early 1900s. Visitors can also see the state's oldest barber shop that was founded in 1883 and the oldest pharmacy from 1874 that still has an old-time soda fountain inside. A lot of the families who live in Pocahontas have been there for generations, and neighbors and friends look out for one another. But in 2019, the death of one of the town's native daughters had everyone wondering who among them was capable of such viciousness. According to a Dateline NBC April 8, 2022 episode entitled The Hands of a Killer, Linda Collins was a native Arkansan growing up in the northeast corner of the state in the small town of Pocahontas. When she was born in 1962, it had a population of just over 3,600 residents. Her family was very poor. They lived about 10 miles outside of town down a gravel road and in a home that did not have running water until she was a teenager. But Linda had the drive and ambition to create a different future for herself. Linda had two children from her first marriage, son Butch and daughter Tate, and married her second husband, Phil Smith, when the children were little. Linda was a realtor and Phil was an attorney, and together they decided to bring better lodging to the area of Pocahontas to help increase tourism. They built a Days Inn and remodeled another motel with a rock and roll theme called the Rock and Roll Motel. Creative. Exactly. So it had Elvis, like 50s records, and just a general energy that surrounded the early days of rock and roll. Which makes sense then when we talked about it in the intro that it's close to all those other cities. She was trying to make it a hub that you can do day trips exactly, from. Exactly, exactly. In 2001, Phil was appointed a judge of the Circuit Court of Arkansas by then-Governor Mike Huckabee, so Linda took over running the motels. On the heels of this, Linda founded a county tourism office to help bring more visitors to their hometown. She was well-known in town as a businesswoman and a community leader, and in 2010 decided to throw her hat into the political ring to represent Pocahontas and Randolph County 
in the state legislature. Linda ran as a Democrat for a seat in the Arkansas State House of Representatives and won with 52% of the vote. According to her campaign website, her background taught her the value of hard work and the blessing of living in a land where everyone, from the poor country girl to the inner city street kid, had the opportunity to achieve their dreams through industry and determination. Linda's press secretary in the State House, Ken Yang, said she was a star with great political potential. Many saw her as a possible future governor. She was a people person who was well-liked, had a great spirit, and was well-known for giving great hugs. Once she was working in the state legislature, she and her closest allies realized that her politics and voting record did not usually align with the Democrats. Her beliefs were based on her faith and conservative. She was a strong supporter of Second Amendment rights, as well as very highly involved in the National Federation of Independent Business. This, of course, with the motels that she owned, NFIB advocates on behalf of small and independent businesses in Washington, D.C. Mm. and other state houses because all of the regulations that you oh, know, yeah. the government likes to do, they try to make sure as small business people, they're protected. Cool. So seven months into Linda's first term, she switched to the Republican Party. When it came time for her to run for reelection two years later, so this is 2012, redistricting from the 2010 decennial census, this is the census done by the federal government every 10 years, moved Linda's assembly district boundaries into an existing district that had a fellow Republican as the incumbent. So every 10 years, as I mentioned, the federal government does require every elected position, Congress, state legislatures, city councils, special districts, all of them have to redistrict. There are a couple things that have to be done. One of the reasons it's done is so that all of the districts have comparable populations. Obviously, they're not going to be equal, but the most populous district and the least populous district for whatever you're redistricting for right. cannot have more of a deviation than 15%. Oh, interesting. The other thing they do is that if there's what they call a majority-minority district already intact, meaning a majority of the voters are a minority population, you cannot change the boundaries of any district so that it diffuses that strength of the minority. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. So that's what this happened. And honestly, reading this, what was interesting is it probably means they had a Democrat majority in their Arkansas state house. That's typically who will redraw the boundaries. And they put two Republicans on top of each other in the same district so that it got rid of one Republican. And that's not just a Democrat thing. Obviously, if the Republicans had been in right. power, they'd do the same. Thing. Everyone benefits their own party exactly. somehow. Or themselves, right. Yeah. Rather than run against the incumbent, Linda decided to run for the state Senate seat in the district in which she resided. Now, she was defeated by the incumbent, who was a Democrat state senator. But Linda ran again for the seat in 2014 after state Senator Wyatt announced that he would not be running again. OK, one more weird thing about this. The Arkansas House of Representatives, their terms are two years long. In the Arkansas State Senate, they're four. If Senator Wyatt was elected in 2012, he would not have an open seat in 2014, unless he resigned. Mm -hmm. I could not find anything right. that said that he stepped down. There was no ballot that showed that, no statehouse transcripts, nothing. But something had to have happened for that seat to be available in 2014. It merely said that he decided not to run again. That should have taken him to 2016. So Linda ran for the state Senate seat for her district. And on November 4th, 2014, Linda beat Democrat James McLean for the seat with 58% of the vote. 
Arkansas State Senator Gary Stubblefield served in the Arkansas Senate with Linda from 2015 to 2019. He said she was a very effective senator and fought tirelessly for her constituents. Linda's nickname among her Senate colleagues was the linebacker because of her fighting and stubborn spirit. That's a compliment, I'd say. I agree, especially for a politician, a female politician, and she was five feet tall. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) I could have rested my elbow on her head. (laughs) And Kathy does that in public. It's weird. (laughs) Linda's stubbornness did not always go over well with all of her colleagues because she would never stop pushing hard for what she wanted and what she thought was right. Political pundits thought it was this stubbornness that found her butting heads with Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, which became very apparent when Linda had a primary opponent in her 2018 re-election bid. Governor Hutchinson supported the opponent instead of Linda, and as a result, she lost her re-election. So after serving in the state legislature for 10 years, she moved back to her small hometown of Pocahontas at the end of 2018. During this time, her marriage to Phil was falling apart. Although they really worked well together as business partners and their businesses and investments were doing well, they could not work out their personal issues. After 23 years of marriage, they filed for divorce. But Linda was not someone to let setbacks get her down. So although she was going through a divorce, within months of returning to Pocahontas, she was dating a new guy and looking into leveraging her political knowledge and experience into lobbying jobs around the country. At the end of May 2019, just five months after returning to Pocahontas, Linda had a job interview in Washington, D.C. She spoke with her daughter Tate after the interview and said everything went well and she was excited about the possibilities. Two days later, Tate sent Linda a text message, but Linda did not reply. Tate thought it was strange but knew her mom was busy. And she knew she would see her mother the next week because Linda was invited to attend the Arkansas Music Awards and made plans with Tate to go to Little Rock to buy a new dress. When a week went by without hearing from her mom, Tate began to worry. Tate called her brother Butch. Tate lived a little more than two hours away from Pocahontas and Little Rock, but Butch lived only a few miles from his mom and told Tate he would swing by and check on their mother. Linda's truck was in the driveway, but no one answered the door. Butch did not have a key, but he walked around the house and did not see anything out of place or anything that looked odd, so he went home. But his sister still felt that something was wrong. The next day, Tate called her grandfather, Linda's dad, who had a key to her home. Tate was on the phone with her grandpa when he arrived, and right away he noticed something odd. Linda's truck was unlocked, which was apparently something she never did. She was obsessive about locking her vehicles. This kind of surprised me when I read it because they're in rural Arkansas. It surprised me too, but I grew up in a family where even when it was okay yeah. to unlock doors. Yeah, you guys were brought... safety, 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 Marie. Well, yeah. Like my family never locked anything. <laughs> <laughs> they still don't. I swear. <laughs> but we were more a safety first kind of family. You were more a safety third kind 100%. of family. 100%. And safety fourth, maybe. Maybe safety fourth. <laughs> but I will say that um, Kathy's husband. Oh, God. <laughs> I know what you're going to say. 
He hates when you bring this up. And my sister and I bring this up all the time, and now it's appropriate for the world to hear it. Remember, 47 countries. That's right. Okay, let me set the stage because... And I'll correct anything that she might be doing to like make it easier on her husband. Yes. My husband and I had just started dating, and he did not realize that Kathy's family was Safety Safety Marie, and Kathy had just had foot surgery, and so her sister and I were keeping her company, and it was late at night, and we were playing games and just hanging out. So my husband wanted to come find me, of course, pre-cell phone days, so he saw my car was at Kathy's house. And was like, oh, I'm going to go see my girlfriend. But it's late and I don't want to knock on the door. What am I going to do? It was a two-story house. The only light he could see was an upstairs bedroom. So he climbed. Well, but hang on. No, it wasn't just an upstairs bedroom. (laughs) It was clearly a big, huge bedroom. Huge bedroom. Which it was. And it had an equal-sized balcony off a slider Right, right there. Right. He thought... Because the light was on, and right. it turns out my mom had fallen asleep with the light on. Right. He thought that's where we were. Yeah. And I still don't understand that. It was Kathy's mother's bedroom. <laughs> right. But we first heard him because we're in the family room playing these games, and we heard somebody up on the roof above us. Yeah. And nobody ever did that. Right. <laughs> exactly. Because at first we were like, we heard noise, and we're like, oh, should we call the police? We ran upstairs to mom's room. Oh, that's right. Because oh we wanted God. to wake her up. That's right. So we run upstairs to her room and we get to her room and we yes. hear somebody knocking on her glass slider on the balcony. Yes. And I was like, oh, we have to call the police immediately. None of our friends, none of our friends would have ever done that. They know your mom is safety, Marie. Exactly. And who would ever, you know, and knock on her slider at windows. midnight? We looked out the front windows and saw no car. Correct. Like no car we knew. Yes. Or actually any car. Yeah. So 911 was called. Yes. Now, just another quick aside as we do this a very popular workplace for teenagers back in the day was Knott's Berry Farm yes so my sister had worked at Knott's Berry Farm as a ride operator when we called 911 and the police came and we opened the front door for them one of the police officers had been one of her fellow ride operators at Knott's Berry Farm (laughs) so the police come and as we open the door for them we hear somebody in our backyard knocking on our backslider the perp was moving around the The perp perp was was moving around he was dodging and weaving (laughs) so the police go back there with their guns drawn Uh. pull open the door and no one's there but as they did that we now hear somebody knocking on the front door but it's a much louder knock it is a like okay crap i see the police cars (laughs) i'm going to knock really loud (laughs) And actually, he should have just gotten in his car and left. I mean, seriously. How he didn't. How he didn't. I know. So now, of course, the police go to the front door, open it. He comes in. But Kathy, at this point, has disappeared. She went into our library and refused to come out. Because your sister looked out a different window and saw my boyfriend's car. And I went into the library because I'm like, this is so awful. He's going to get shot. I'm going to go say some prayers. (laughs) I can't watch this. And she also didn't want to see my mom. So the police are talking to him. My mom's there. And they say to her, do you know this man? Or this kid, probably. But they said, do you know him? And my mom, of course, did. And she said, huh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Let's, let's make him you know, sweat a little bit for a while. Oh so what they said to her was, well, he's clearly been drinking. And if you let him go, we will arrest him the minute he sits in his car. Oh my and so gosh. my mom said, all right, fine, get in here. Like, she knew him. The jig was up. So the jig was up. And Kathy would still not come out of the library. <laughs> and so I was my, so embarrassed. I was so embarrassed. But this is what she comes out to. My mom said to him, how did you get up to the balcony? Because again, 
Safety, Safety Marie. Marie. She wants to know exactly what this was and where the flaw in the security system was. Right, right. And so he said, I climbed. Yeah, and I'm like, answer her. Yeah. Exactly. Give her details. She wants details. <laughs> And that is the man I married. That is the man that fathered my five children. (laughs) And every year at what we call hashtag the best lake, my sister and I will retell the story. And he hates it with a passion. I think the only person who likes the story more than you is your sister. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And then you're actually third. Oh, my God. (laughs) And actually, my mom liked it, too. Before she passed away, she told the story as well. Okay. And here's the funny thing. You know, like your mom being all like strict and, again, hypervigilant about security. She got sick of us making fun of him for it. And she told us to leave him alone. Oh, my God. I forgot about that. (laughs) Yes. She became his defender. (laughs) Uh, And the response was, never. Exactly. Oh, my goodness. Okay, back to the story. Yeah, exactly. Linda's dad then went to the back door of the house and gave it a hard shove, and it opened. Tate could hear her grandfather searching her mother's house and calling out Linda's name and opening and closing doors. He told Tate he checked every room, every closet, checked in the tub, checked everywhere in between, but did not find Linda. He then said there was something in the kitchen on the wooden subfloor that he thought was varnish. Linda's home was undergoing extensive renovations, and there were cans of paint and varnish all over the house. Tate and her grandpa were both now worried, so they called Butch, her brother, and asked him to meet the grandpa at Linda's house. Butch was there in minutes, and when he saw the stain on the kitchen subfloor, he said it looked like a full pot of coffee was dropped and broke when it hit the floor, which made sense to him because Linda was a big coffee drinker. They sent Tate a video of what they were looking at to get her opinion, and when she saw it, she immediately got the chills. To her, the stain looked like blood. So what is it about men looking at it going, varnish? Eh, maybe coffee? I don't know. Right. And every woman who's into true crime goes, that's blood. Oh, that's blood. Yeah. Exactly. That's blood. <laughs> See, it serves an educational purpose. That's right. <laughs> Butch and his grandpa closed up Linda's house as they were walking back to their cars, and their grandpa mentioned that he smelled something bad. Because they were in rural Arkansas, they thought it was a dead animal. There was a tarp over some construction material in front of Linda's garage door, so Butch went over to check and see if an animal had died there. He moved a brick off the corner of the tarp, and as he raised it, a swarm of flies came out. Then he saw his mom. She was lying on her stomach with her arms above her head, wrapped in the comforter Butch had taken with him when he went to college. You know, in the Dateline NBC episode that we had referenced, Mm -hmm. Butch said that his grandfather was trying to get over there to see because Butch saw it. And Butch said he actually physically restrained him because he'll never get rid of that memory of what it looked like. And he did not want his grandfather to see his daughter that way. Oh, that's a good grandson. It really is. Oh, wow. Butch called 911, then he called Tate to tell her they found their mother and that she had been murdered. But who would want to kill her? The Dateline episode showed the scene from a Randolph County Sheriff deputy's body cam footage. Deputies immediately rolled out crime scene tape around the edges of the property to prevent anyone from contaminating the scene. Based on the advanced decomposition of Linda's body, Investigators could not initially determine her cause of death. Randolph County Sheriff Kevin Bell spoke on the Dateline episode and said that to him, the murder was personal. He had known Linda and her family for years, 
not only as a business leader and politician in their town, but their families all went to the same church. Sheriff Bell spent years with the Arkansas State Police before becoming the Randolph County Sheriff, so he had a lot of experience with violent crimes. So, before entering Linda's house, he began logging his observations. He first noticed that on the side of the house there were some places where there was a mounting bracket for security cameras, but the cameras were gone. Tracking back around the house, he saw the trail where someone dragged Linda from the back sliding door. Once inside the house, Sheriff Bell saw the large stain on the kitchen floor, and he immediately knew it was blood. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I guess it wasn't coffee, it wasn't varnish. There were signs that someone tried to clean up, including a Clorox bottle on the counter with what looked like blood on the handle. Despite the mess inside the house due to the renovations, it did not look like there was a robbery attempt. There were no signs of forced entry on any of the doors or windows, although he did notice similar security camera mounting brackets inside the house that were also missing cameras. This suggested to investigators that the killer or killers could be someone Linda knew. Butch said nothing about his mother's murder made sense and never thought something like this would happen. And without knowing who killed her or why, Butch was worried about his family's safety. Rumors began circulating almost immediately after Linda's body was found that her death was a cover-up that went all the way to the top of the government. State investigators were called in to help and asked Linda's family and closest friends to come to the sheriff's station so they could create a timeline of her last days. Tim Loggins was a close friend for several years. He introduced Linda to his fiancée, Becky O'Donnell, a couple years earlier, and the two had become best friends. On the night that Linda's body was found, Becky and Tim were both interviewed. Becky was sobbing during the interview and said that not only was Linda her best friend, but soon after the two met, Becky started working for her as a personal assistant. Becky was so reliable, she began driving Linda everywhere, and Linda asked her to manage her motel. Becky told investigators that she picked Linda up from the airport after her job interview in Washington, D.C., but because a week had passed, Becky was unable to remember the details. She told investigators she misplaced her phone the day she picked up Linda, and she was lost without it. The funny thing is, in the Dateline episode, you see the interview happening, and when she said that, the investigator, in his best Arkansas accent, and I apologize to everybody, but he reached over and put his hand on her arm and he said, bless your heart, I bet you are. Like when she said she was lost without it. It was, bless your heart, I bet you are. We all know what bless your heart means. Uh, Yes, we do. (laughs) It really doesn't mean bless your heart. Exactly. It means I don't like you. (laughs) And I think you're stupid. (laughs) Becky did remember that Linda flew back on Monday, May 27th, which was Memorial Day. Becky told investigators she got a text from Linda the following day asking her to bring lunch to the house. She said while they were eating lunch, Linda told her all about the night before. The man she began seeing shortly after arriving back in Pocahontas, Rendell Wallace, spent the night with her. Yeah. Linda told Becky that it took Rendell four hours to respond to Linda's texts and calls, and it upset her because she thought maybe Rendell was seeing someone else. Becky said that she and Linda argued about Rendell because Becky did not believe that Linda had the right to be upset. They had only been dating for a few months and were not exclusive. Becky suggested to Linda that maybe she should just slow things down and get to know him a little bit better. 
The investigator said that he could understand why what Becky said might make Linda mad. She was a senator and did not like people telling her what to do. Becky agreed that Linda was very much like that. Becky said she never saw Linda after that lunch. She told investigators about the last conversation they had a couple hours later. Linda told Becky that she was thinking about going over to Rendell's house that night, and Becky replied that she thought Linda did not want her being involved in her personal life, at which point Becky said Linda hung up on her. They had a meeting scheduled at a motel later that evening, but Linda never showed up. Becky also told investigators she went by Linda's house one day to check on her, but couldn't remember which day it was. Police became even more interested in finding out more about Rendell when Tim Loggins told them that Rendell was probably the last person to see Linda alive. Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, <laughs> despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. A little over a week after Linda's death, another former state senator, Jonathan Nichols, was found dead in his home from a gunshot wound, this one in the neighboring state of Oklahoma. It was too much of a coincidence for some people. They could not believe that two former state senators died just weeks apart without them being connected. And rumors started circulating that people were going around targeting state senators. This rumor was eventually put to rest when it was confirmed that State Senator Nichols' death was a suicide. More than a week after the last day Linda was seen alive, investigators spoke to Rendell Wallace. Rendell said he and Linda dated briefly more than two decades ago and reconnected recently after she moved back to town. He told investigators Linda called him on the Monday night she returned from her trip to Washington, D.C. about 11.30 p.m., and he went over and spent the night. The next morning, he left through the back patio door and he heard her lock the door behind him. Linda did not call him in the days that followed, and he just thought she was in meetings down in Little Rock and would reach out when she could. Police were able to quickly rule out Rendell as a suspect. As the days went on without any information about the investigation, the speculation as to who killed Linda went into overdrive. In the Dateline episode referenced earlier, KARK-TV reporter Mitch McCoy 
Kark TV. Kark. I think it's K Ark for Arkansas. Oh, okay. <laughs> I am so lame. <laughs> you kind of are. <laughs> Just sometimes. <laughs> the reporter Mitch McCoy said that it was difficult to be sure of anything that was being done because Randolph County invoked a gag order on the investigation just hours after Linda's body was found. Ken Yang, Linda's former press secretary, said gag orders like that are rare in Arkansas, especially considering the speed with which it happened. Cal, I think it was the prosecutor, once all this came to light, the prosecutor went into court and basically said, hey, you know, we want everything sealed. We don't, we don't want to be sidetracked. Um, With a bunch of nosy reporters exactly, knocking on our door. That's exactly right. And so what we don't know, what I couldn't figure out was... Did they have any probable cause declarations on file for warrant they may or may not have been issuing? That kind of stuff. And so... Um, and the assumption is they would have to, because otherwise it was just the I, medical I, examiner's report in Crime Lab. You're right. They did seal those documents. We just don't know what was on file, if anything, in the court records. Right. The rumors included a political hit because Linda was Republican. She also would never back down on something she believed in. And there were rumors of bullying occurring to try and get her to vote one way or another. I can't imagine politicians being bullies. Isn't that weird? Especially a female who's five feet tall. <laughs> That's so crazy. I know. <laughs> of course, with rumors, names and circumstances are often vague, which was the case with Linda's murder. Until the Clinton name came up. Oh my God. <laughs> when I read this, I was cracking up. This is 2019. Yeah. Like, let him get out of office and just stay out. Right. I mean, seriously. <laughs> The rumor about the former president and first lady was that the reason there was no information being made available was because the Clintons were involved in a cover-up. That's so funny to me. Because they had nothing better to right, do. exactly. For Sheriff Bell and state investigators, one name kept coming up. Phil Smith, Linda's ex-husband. Linda's children, Butch and Tate, were in elementary school when she married Phil, and he raised them as his own. Phil and Linda worked together... They were both hard workers and ambitious. They built and ran the Days Inn in Pocahontas together, as well as the Rock and Roll Motel we mentioned earlier. Several years into their marriage, Linda was elected to the state legislature, and Phil was re-elected several times as a Third Circuit Court judge. Linda and Phil were married about 10 years when Butch and Tate said they saw problems in the marriage. They described it as being a deep chill. From their perspective, Linda and Phil interacted more like business partners than a married couple. In 2017, they separated and Linda filed for divorce. But agreeing to the terms of the divorce kept postponing entry of the final divorce order. They were fighting over their businesses, their investment properties, their money, and their pensions. Butch and Tate were dragged into the mess when Linda told them they needed to be on her side only and did not want them having any relationship with Phil. The divorce got uglier when Linda claimed to have walked into Phil's judicial chambers and caught him looking at porn on a state computer. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, exactly. And she included that allegation as part of her divorce filing. <laughs> and by the way, she this is... She dirty. Yeah, exactly. And I believe Arkansas is a fault state. It is. When you divorce somebody, you have to show they did something wrong or you lived apart for so many months. And it's also not a community property state. Yeah. Like in California, it's no fault. So when you go to a lawyer's office and you're like, he cheated on me and he did this and he did that, the lawyer's like, so what? Let's get down to the paperwork. You right. Know? And it's community property state. So let's just get this done. Right. So I'm sure in Arkansas, it's different and there's a lot of fighting. Well, there's a lot of fighting anyway. But yeah. anyway, 
So as a result of this being included in the divorce filing, correct, Phil was investigated by the State Judicial Discipline and Disability Commission. And yes, that title is correct. The commission's investigation led to the determination that Phil improperly used court computer equipment after regular work hours at the office. I kind of feel this is more like a plea deal. It's, you know, where <laughs> it does feel kind of mild. Yeah. You know, but it actually wasn't mild because according to Mitch McCoy with KRK TV, Kark TV, Kark, Kark TV <laughs> Phil accepted this finding, but it damaged his judicial career. As part of the commission's determination, Phil Smith was stripped of his judicial powers and prohibited from ever becoming a judge in Arkansas again. Boom. So the. <laughs> But even though that that's what he agreed to with the finding, that it was just using court computer equipment after hours, clearly that's not what it meant. Exactly. According to Linda's close friend, Tim, despite Linda putting up a good fight, when the divorce ended, Linda ended up on the losing side financially. Phil got almost everything. And I didn't see anywhere what this meant. And I didn't hear anybody other than Tim saying this. Right. We don't know. Yeah, exactly. Linda appealed the court's ruling and was told that it would delay the divorce being granted for another 17 months-ish. Tim also told police that Linda was scared to death of Phil, but Tim was not the only one saying it. Her family, including her children and friends, said that they saw her fear too. Tate said when her mother was killed, her first thought was Phil did it. She said she believed Linda's fear of Phil was real and not an act because Linda believed Phil tried to kill her before. About 15 years prior to her death, Linda was sick, but no one could figure out what was wrong with her. She was the kind of person who woke up early every day and was go, go, go until she went to bed at night. But for almost two years, she was basically bedridden. She had zero energy and could not get out of bed to do anything. After two years of suffering from this extreme fatigue, Linda's blood work revealed something. She had an extremely high level of mercury in her system. She did not have a heavy diet of fish, so doctors wondered if it possibly could have come from the fillings in her teeth or, and this was not scientifically backed, that the cans of soda that she drank in copious amounts might have been responsible. Okay, so it wasn't the soda itself, it was the cans you're saying. That's what they were saying. It was never proven that the cans had mercury or they could have leaked it. So in other words, like my diet Pepsi addiction is still good to go. And my diet Coke addiction (laughs) is good to go as well. (laughs) Phew. Okay. (laughs) But none of those things even could have explained the level of mercury in her because the amount was so high, it was as if she drank all of the mercury that was in a thermometer. Dang. I know. Now that doctors diagnosed the problem, they were able to put Linda on the path to recovery and she got better quickly. She always thought the person behind the mercury poisoning was Phil, but... She never reported her concerns to police. She did, however, tell everyone she knew. Linda's close friends, Tim and Becky, had heard her stories about the mercury poisoning as well. And after her death, they both shared it with the police. Becky told authorities that Phil used to hit Linda and terrorized her during the divorce, saying she saw it happen with her own eyes. Linda changed the locks on her house and kept a gun in her nightstand. She also asked Tim to help her install a home security system and wanted something that was wireless so the power could not be cut. The security cameras were motion activated and Linda could access the footage using her cell phone or laptop. Between the inside and outside cameras, nine cameras in all were installed in Linda's house. Tim also thought Phil might be the killer. 
He told investigators that shortly before Linda was killed, she shared with him that more than 20 years ago, she was dating both Rendell and Phil before she decided to marry Phil. And now she told Tim she thought she'd married the wrong man. Tate knew that her mom would get email alerts when any of the security cameras were activated. She also knew her mother's email password, so she pulled up Linda's email and saw notification after notification from the security company as she scrolled through the inbox. Investigators now knew the cameras were in place and working on the day Linda was murdered. Now they needed to get their hands on the footage. Approximately two weeks after Linda's body was discovered, her family and friends were holding a visitation at their church. Because of Linda's high profile, some of the parking lot was sectioned off for media. They also had uniformed and plainclothes security because rumors had started that conspiracy theorists were going to stage a protest at the church. Sheriff Bell also believed Linda's killer was someone she knew and would be at the visitation that day. Investigators assumed the killer or killers removed Linda's security cameras after she was murdered, knowing the cameras may have recorded the actual murder or events leading up to it. They were able to log in to Linda's online security company account, but discovered that someone else had logged into Linda's account after she died. They could not tell who and deleted all of the videos. The sheriff's office served search warrants and a subpoena on the security company for whatever footage the company had from the cameras at Linda's house. A couple of days later, they received a package with a thumb drive that contained all of the information that was stored in the cloud from Linda's camera system. The package arrived the same day as the visitation. Sheriff Bell and his deputies were planning to attend the visitation, so they immediately sat down with their IT staff to go through the video clip by clip, starting on the day Linda was murdered. They could see her at home that afternoon with Becky, and after a few minutes, Becky said goodbye and left the house, just as she told investigators. Three hours later, the camera over the garage door was activated. Investigators could not see anyone, but the camera did record Linda's blood-curdling screams as she was murdered. Later that night, the camera recorded someone covered in a white sheet sneaking around to the back of her house. As the team continued to watch the videos, they learned who Linda's killer was. But they had no time to celebrate because they knew the person would show up at the family's visitation and police wanted to arrest them before they could get to the church. Sheriff Bell and his team needed to wait for an arrest warrant to be approved by a judge, so they parked outside the killer's house waiting to hear when their warrant was given the green light. Before they heard back, their suspect got into their truck and left for the visitation, which now narrowed the window of time for police to make an arrest because it would only take 15 minutes to get to the church. Sheriff Bell finally received news that the warrant was signed when they were within one mile of the church. The sheriff then told his deputy to light him up. When the truck stopped, police surrounded it with guns drawn and told the driver to get out of the vehicle and walk backwards toward them with their hands up. The driver's door opened and Tim Loggins exited the vehicle with his hands up. Then the truck's passenger door opened and Becky O'Donnell exited with her hands up. In an interrogation room at the sheriff's department, two detectives walked in and informed Becky O'Donnell that she was under arrest for the murder of Linda Collins. What the Dateline episode showed 
was they were sitting at a table. It was rectangular, and Becky was at the end of the table, and the two detectives were on either side. And where was the camera? The camera was at the other end of the table. Like opposite Becky. Right. So you only saw the detective's backs, but you saw the front of Becky. Mm -hmm. So the first detective looked at her and told her she was under arrest for killing Linda. And she did what I like to call the dog look. The You kind of tilt your head to the side and you're like, like, what? I did what? (laughs) So cute dog look, not so much on Becky. The other detective then holds up a piece of paper. Now, the camera, of course, remember, is behind them. So you can't see on the other side of the paper, but you can tell it's an image of some sort. Right. He holds the paper up and he looks at her. This is what he said. We gotcha. Wow. After the arrest, Sheriff Bell went straight to the church. During the visitation, they brought the family into a back room to tell them what happened so they would hear it from the sheriff's office and not someone else. Butch and Tate were as surprised as anyone else was. The authorities were not ready to tell the public, so before the family went back to the visitation, they were asked not to tell anyone. That would be really hard. You had to have been reeling from your mom dying, your mom being murdered even murdered, more. yeah. You then are reeling because you just found out her best friend did it. Right. Or at least was charged with it at this right. point. And now you're like, shh, don't tell anyone. That would be really tough. I can't imagine. KARK TV, or Kark as Kathy right. likes to call it, <laughs> reporter Mitch McCoy said Becky was not on anyone's list of possible suspects. Mitch did not even know who she was, and he had covered the murder for his TV station from the beginning. Becky had a lot of secrets. It turned out she had been on the investigator's radar from the beginning, despite what the Kark journalist said. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, hence the gag order. Yeah, true. According to investigators, Becky acted very emotionally when she was questioned after Linda was killed, but the investigators told Sheriff Bell that she was making sounds like she was crying, but no tears were coming out of her eyes. They also learned that Becky lied about losing her cell phone. Bless her heart. Bless her heart. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) The records from the phone company showed that she was using her phone after she told the police she had lost it. And that's just stupid. Yeah, that is dumb. And Becky also lied about when she last saw Linda. Remember, she told investigators that she last saw Linda after their fight about Rendell and talked to her only one more time on the phone after that, but had not seen her since. Her fiancé, Tim, actually told investigators that Becky went to Linda's house to check on her every day, knocking on the door and repeatedly calling and texting her. Linda's son, Butch, told deputies he saw Becky when he went to check on his mom, which was two days after she returned from D.C. He said Becky was knocking on the door. He told investigators she was acting strangely, kind of rushed, and she had no interest in talking to him at all. Butch also said that he thought for a while there was something fishy about his mom's friendship with Tim and Becky. Linda's friendship with them came out of the blue and was around the time she filed for divorce from Phil. Butch had never heard of either of them or met them, until after this point when the divorce was filed. Suddenly, they were all involved in her business and her life. From Butch's understanding, Becky began as Linda's personal assistant and was then asked to be the bookkeeper at the motel office. He said it was very odd for Becky to be able to insinuate herself into Linda's life so quickly when Linda was always extremely cautious about her personal information and her money. In fact, it took Linda forever to allow Butch and Tate to take care of that type of stuff. They also found out during the divorce, Linda gave Tim her power of attorney. 
Tim said she did so because Linda needed him to handle her legal and business affairs since she traveled so much. You know what was odd about that is he was not an attorney. Right. He was not related. Right. He was not a business partner. Mm -hmm. What he was was a retired corrections officer. I am guessing, and it's just a guess because I didn't read anything on this point, that she trusted him because he was sort of part of the law enforcement community. That's my guess. Butch said he also discovered in the days before Linda's death, money was missing from his grandpa's personal account, an account Linda had access to. Butch said that his mother would never take any money from his grandpa. His grandpa showed Butch and Tate pictures of the cash checks with Linda's signature and they knew right away the handwriting on the checks was not their mom's. When police asked Becky about the checks, she said of course she signed them and did so at Linda's request, saying Linda asked her to do things like that a lot. Investigators said they believed Becky had stolen upwards of $50,000 from Linda and had been stealing from her for two years. Dang. That's a lot of money. Yes. And it wasn't only from her father, but they also said that she was skimming money off the books in the motel. I can't even believe that she took money from the grandpa. To me, that's like a fool move. Right. Like skimming probably is easier to get away with. I agree 100%. like stealing from her father. And he wouldn't notice. Yeah, come on. Sheriff Bell's theory was that Linda was likely tipped off by her father or Tate about the checks, confronted Becky about it, and then Becky killed her. The medical examiner determined Linda was killed on Tuesday, May 28, 2019, the day after returning home from her Washington, D.C. trip. Crime lab technicians were able to determine that Linda's death was caused by multiple stab wounds. No footage was recovered that showed how Linda was killed, nor did authorities find the murder weapon. I thought that was interesting, Kath. Do you have any understanding as to why? My only guess would be maybe the cameras were turned off inside, like maybe they'd already been taken down. Yeah, maybe. Sheriff Bell knew that at one time Becky was convicted and put on probation for theft, and in 2007, One of Becky's friends went to authorities and told them Becky was plotting to kill her ex-husband, offering $50,000 for someone to do the hit. Becky told police she was all drunk when she said that. (laughs) (laughs) I was just kidding. I was just wasted. Just kidding. (laughs) It was the alcohol talking. Not me really wanting to kill my husband. You know how that goes. (laughs) And I have 50 grand laying around in cash in my room. Right. But it doesn't mean that's what I was going to use it for. But without any other evidence other than what the friend had told them, charges were never filed. Becky pleaded not guilty to the charges of capital murder, abuse of a corpse, and tampering with physical evidence in the death of Linda Collins, and remained in jail. Tim strongly believed Becky was innocent and spoke with her as often as he could to help plan her defense and keep her spirits up. As he learned about some of the evidence against her, he thought it was very thin. Tim felt that the money was not stolen, but rather used for items that Becky purchased for the motel. And she signed checks for Linda all the time. He did admit Becky and Linda were upset with each other and that Becky lied about losing her cell phone, but neither of those things were evidence that she killed anyone. Tim felt like there was a cover-up and Becky was being framed. Aaron Casanelli, who was Tim's attorney, and don't know why he had one, was also concerned there was a cover-up to protect Linda's powerful ex-husband and they were not alone in thinking something sinister was going on. Every detail was followed closely by the public, and when judges and prosecutors kept recusing themselves after being assigned to the case, conspiracy theories were coming out of the woodwork. Each recusal 
only added to the rumor mill. I bet. Seven months after Becky's arrest, new charges were brought against her. Solicitation to commit capital murder. When she was drunk. Right. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Another bad drinking night. Exactly. You know, you know how your girlfriends get. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> after another inmate came forward and told guards Becky was trying to arrange for someone to kill Phil Smith. The snitch said Becky wanted to make it look like a suicide and have Phil leave a note taking responsibility for killing Linda. The informant also said Becky wanted to kill Phil's new wife, the prosecutor, and the judge. So basically anyone standing in her way of getting freedom. Exactly, exactly. Although I hate jailhouse formants, as you know. I know, because snitches get stitches. That's exactly right. In August 2020, more than one year after Linda's death and a month before Becky was scheduled to go to trial, one piece of evidence that clearly proved Becky was the killer became public for the first time. The day the sheriff's office downloaded camera footage, the video showed Becky as she was taking down one of the inside cameras and putting it in a tote bag. The footage showed Becky holding a bloody knife and putting it into the bag on top of the camera. When Becky put the camera in the bag, she overlooked two things. Number one, the camera lens was facing up. And two, the camera was running on battery power and recorded everything. Mm, Not her lucky day. Exactly. It was a clear shot of Becky's face and the knife, and the blood on the knife was very easy to see. That was the image investigators had shown Becky in the interrogation room when she was arrested. We gotcha. Exactly. So in the Dateline episode, Mm -hmm. Kark TV reporter, (laughs) Stitch McCoy... (laughs) When they showed her the image, her face dropped. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could clearly see that on the video. And he said he still doesn't have the word to describe what that look meant, like what the look on her face meant. Right. So, you know, we don't swear on this, but I know exactly what the look on her face meant. exactly. It starts with an F. And it ends with an uh Yeah. Like, and, she yeah. was screwed. Right. And she knew it. She's like, truck. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think she looked like someone who probably swore. <laughs> Which we do in our off time. <laughs> yeah. Like we said, the bloopers are going to be amazing. Yeah. You right. will learn words you never knew there were. <laughs> Behind the scenes, investigators were talking to Becky about a plea deal. After several months of negotiations, she agreed to plead guilty to first-degree murder and abuse of corpse with the death penalty off the table. On August 6, 2020, Becky stood before Special Circuit Court Judge John Fogelman and admitted, I went to Linda's house and I intentionally killed her, then hid the body. Separately, she also pleaded no contest to two charges of solicitation of murder for trying to orchestrate the murder of Phil Smith while she was in jail. So the snitch was right. And no, I'm not apologizing to the snitch. (laughs) Yes, she is. (laughs) I still don't like them. You could not like them, but honestly, I'm surprised it was true. Because I agree with you. There was enough. Right. You know, Judge Fogelman sentenced Becky to 40 years for first degree murder. She also received three years for abuse of corpse and two seven-year sentences for the two solicitation of murder counts. Because some of the charges were to be served concurrently, she actually received a total of 50 years in prison. According to Becky's attorney, she will be eligible for parole in approximately 30 years. 
after being held at the McPherson Unit Prison in Newport, Arkansas. In October of 2020, Becky was transferred to an out-of-state prison for safety reasons. Since it was done for safety reasons, it is not known where she is currently being held. And what was interesting about this, Kathy, because I only read it in one paper that that was true. Mm -hmm. I didn't see it anywhere else. When you go to the Arkansas inmate locator, when you put in her name, it comes up where it says facility she's assigned to. Right. And it says interstate compacts. Hmm. So clearly it's with a neighboring state or a state they have a deal with to be able to trade prisoners. She's not in Arkansas. Interesting. After sentencing, Linda's son Butch said, What happened to my mother was an awful deed carried out of hate, jealousy, and greed. The plea deal is not what my first choice would have been, but at least we have a guaranteed amount of time that she will be in prison for. He said his family will argue against her release at her parole hearings. Linda's daughter Tate said, Today our family has found swift justice by way of a plea deal. No amount of punishment will ever fill the void that Rebecca O'Donnell made in our lives the day she killed our mother. Today we find some shred of peace that O'Donnell will be put in prison for a very long time, unable to hurt anyone else. We want to thank you so much for listening. We really have a fun time recording this podcast. And the minute we don't, we're going to stop. (laughs) (laughs) But we also appreciate all the messages we're getting from listeners who tell us how much they like it and how much it reminds them of how they are with their friends. Exactly. So please just share this with your friends. And that helps us out a lot. Absolutely. And if you're not following us on Facebook or Instagram, we are at Killer Destinations Podcast on both of them. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. What's spring like in Park City, Utah? Imagine waking up on a bluebird day to ski the greatest snow on earth at two world-class resorts, Park City Mountain and Deer Valley. Exploring miles of wide open spaces by snowshoe or cross-country skis. Wandering our historic Main Street with its Opry ski scene and award-winning restaurants. When you love it like we love it, Park City, Utah will always be winter's favorite town. Join the experience at visitparkcity.com.